Hello, and welcome to Plastics News Radio. This episode is one of a series we recorded on location from the negotiations for a global plastics treaty in Paris. I'm Steve Tolikin, your host and a journalist at Plastics News. We went to the talks because this treaty could have a big impact on how we manufacture plastics, how we use it, and ultimately how we deal with its pollution. Over the next 18 months, diplomats from more than 150 countries will try to reach an agreement. In Paris, I talk with both industry and environmental groups about what they want. In this episode, we'll hear from Yvette Ariano, the head of the environmental justice group Fenceline Watch. Yvette talks about communities that face pollution and health risks because they live along the petrochemical corridors in the U.S. and what they want from the treaty. We're here with Yvette Ariano, the founder and executive director of Fenceline Watch, a Houston-based environmental justice organization. Uh, the group's stated goal is to end the multi-generational harm toxins cause to fenceline communities. Uh, Yvette founded Fenceline Watch in 2020 and has been to both plastics treaty negotiating sessions. Yvette, thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Um, let's start with, can you tell us a little bit about the work that Fenceline Watch does and what are your goals for the, uh, this session of the plastics treaty and the treaty overall? Of course. We are a community-based organization, and we work with community on several different issues, uh, but the overarching one is to try and stop the multi-generational toxic harm that everything from petrochemicals to oil refineries to the infrastructure that you know we have in the home of the largest petrochemical complex in the nation um, is butted up uh, against our communities. And so we're talking about, you know, engaging with schools, engaging with community, engaging with small local businesses. And um, we have worked on a vast amount of issues that relate to, to trying to change things where we live. Uh, everything from redistricting to uh, community engagement with workshops so that people better understand the issues. Uh, we've offered uh, support to communities. Uh, one I'm thinking directly of, you know, Baytown and the ExxonMobil lawsuit that just recently happened and uh, the Fifth Circuit to, to really try and make sure that communities feel heard and supported. But we also work on comments, you know, comments that are filed with the Federal Register over rules that can strengthen regulations and can improve the lives of everyone in our communities. And here, uh, we're actually moving with a global effort, part of Break Free From Plastic, in order to engage the in the international global treaty on plastics to also try and get change for our communities along the Houston Ship Channel that are experiencing a massive growth of plastic production. Okay. Well, before we get into um, some of the policy issues, and it sounds like your group both works on the ground with communities and in this sort of policy space. Before we get into the policy issues, uh, you know, I, I heard you at a press briefing Monday here at the, the talks discuss, you know, the impact on communities along the fence line um, in terms of childhood leukemia, asthma, nerve damage, things like that. Just to set the scene a little bit, can you talk uh, uh, briefly about those impacts? Sure. I've been engaged in our communities now for a number of years, even before founding Fenceland Watch, and I've seen a number of different permitting actions and hearing requests where uh, community comes to these things, right? 
and uh, attempts to, to better understand what those issues are. But it takes a lot of engagement even before then, right? A lot of canvassing, a lot of meeting with folks. Uh, and in those meetings, we come across uh, people who have lost children, you know, as young as four years old uh, to childhood leukemia. I've met two neighbors in the same community who had nerve damage and had nerve replacement surgeries who didn't even know they had that. I've met other women like myself who suffer from reproductive issues. Um, and obviously we're going to have cancer clusters along the communities. I feel that whenever we start having those meaningful interactions and build trust, we begin to share stories about how we are affected by the infrastructure we live next to. Okay, and you uh, ha had said earlier this is your second, you've been to both plastics treaty negotiations. Right. Um, what kind of policies or what kind of things are you looking for in the, in the plastics treaty that would be valuable to the work you're doing? The plastics treaty is vital to our work. It's vital to progress in our communities um, because it offers us an opportunity to engage in a space where we are listened to and are bearing witness to how other countries and communities are moving in order to create change in their communities. Because for years we have seen a lack of movement on behalf of our state, that is, you know, we're an oil state, it's Texas, uh, all the way to the federal government, which obviously delegates a lot of authority to states, and so there's a lack of enforcement, there's a lack of oversight, and we're consistently looking for different uh, innovative and intersectional ways to try and create change. And so whether it's, you know, uh, working on changing the rules around language so that our community, a predominantly Latino community, uh, can engage in permit hearings all the way to how do we create oversight over our federal government agencies and our federal government as a whole, and that is by entering these international spaces here at UNESCO and uh, the following venues in order to be heard. Um, I heard you speak at an event earlier this week where you talked about um, things like looking at in the treaty for reductions in toxins or production caps. Um, can you expand a bit on why you see those as important tools coming out of a treaty? It's no secret that plastic is derived, 99% of plastic is derived from fossil fuels. And acknowledging that is one thing, but living next to the fence line and front line, we are at the fence line of explosions, of flares, of continuous odors, uh, from three in the morning to when you're taking a walk on a Sunday afternoon. And so these aren't just odors and bad smells, they also carry symptoms, whether it's headaches, uh, difficulty breathing. And so it's, it's affecting the living standards of our own community. So we not only have to acknowledge that it's derived from fossil fuels, but we also have to tackle the toxics of this un largely unregulated sector that is extending a lifeline over to the fossil fuel industry, whether that's gas or coal uh, or oil. And so this is why we're engaged in the space is because there's no denying it, the science is there, the facts are there. There has been 
the reason why we're here is because an overwhelming amount of countries are also experiencing this globally and uh, all have admitted to a triple planetary crisis and plastic is one of those so um, that's what the toxic angle does but also the production piece we are in the home of the largest petrochemical complex and it's vastly growing and exponentially growing uh, I've seen and what I feel is that the plastic sector and the fossil fuel sector see this opportunity in continuing their lifelines as closing and before that door completely closes they want to lock in as many permits as much infrastructure and continue to extend their lives not for 30 to 40 or 60 years we're talking about 60 to 100 years and this creates an issue for us as coastal communities already affected largely by climate change we cannot continue to take half measures and we have to stop the issue of toxics that affect our lives shorten them um, create these exhausting bills where we can't get out of a cycle of debt you know so through all of that, we've seen plastic as one of the largest uh, threats to our communities. Do you feel like you're seeing um, the kind of discussion or language or movement at the treaty that you would like to see? And does has anything surprised you in terms of your experiences in these negotiations? The first INC, I came out very hopeful in Uruguay, I was able to listen and bear witness to small island developing states like the Cook Islands, uh, like Palau, and so many others that came out and not only mentioned the threat of toxics uh, to their human rights, but also the strangling of food systems, uh, the need to tackle the waste already in the environment. and so. All of these countries, one by one, individually acknowledged this problem, and it almost just really gave us a, a better understanding that we're not the only ones in the room, that the majority of countries in the space are pro taking actions to really tackle the plastics crisis and turn off that tap. Uh, the surprising thing is I was hoping that uh, the U.S. would take a very similar stance and I'm still waiting for that to, to start to, to manifest because uh, as of right now, I see the U.S. as leading from behind instead of from the front where usually, especially in international negotiations, the assumption is that the U.S., similar to uh, different countries in Europe, are going to take this very leading stance as developed nations with a lot of resources and instead I'm seeing so many developing nations, so many other uh, countries that are dealing with human rights violations that are pushing that buck and are continuously pressuring not only to better the lives of their communities, but in turn ours. Well, that's a good uh, transition to a question I wanted to ask you about. I wanted to ask you about U.S. policy and your reaction to that. Um, you know, obviously the Biden administration has uh, enacted some executive orders on environmental justice. Uh, the EPA recently proposed some new rules for fence line emission monitoring, um, and the administration, you know, recently released a draft national plastic strategy. Um, what do you think of those actions? Uh, are they a model for anything going on here? And just, you know, what are your general thoughts on those actions? You know, um, 
That's a hard one. <laughs> okay. And it's difficult to answer because um, although I've seen the U.S. really stand and try to, to get the process going and get us to talk about substantive material here, I, I also do have an issue with the approach. Uh, the approach being waste management, the approach being uh, labeling on plastics, and uh, with an administration that has such a big focus on environmental justice, I wish that that focus was on the effects that this kind of infrastructure presents in our communities, right? So everything from coastal communities throughout Texas and Louisiana, where we have so much petrochemical infrastructure, all the way to Detroit, you know, and you know, Baltimore that have massive incinerators, uh, who don't need chemical recycling to just introduce the toxics that we're exposed to in their communities. So I, I, I'm, I'm in a space where I, I'm hopeful for the next coming days, which is literally just today and tomorrow, right? right? right, right. <laughs> for them to really, really bring the camera down. Um, but I do appreciate the reintroduction of the executive order by the administration and I'm glad to see that there's a draft national strategy, and I hope that uh, communities very similar to ours flood those gates of comments, and that that draft national strategy then also begins to include caps on plastics, right? A reduction and phase out of toxic chemicals that are not only entering our homes through the explosions, flares, and odors, but also opening, uh, closing the doors to those toxics to the everyday person who is feeding their children uh, with baby food inside of plastic wraps, who is going to work and purchasing a sandwich wrapped in plastic or the water that we drink. Uh, because this is an issue that should concern all of us and we need meaningful action on behalf of our own country uh, to really start limiting those exposures or we have a massive public health crisis or in uh, these terms a, a human rights crisis on our hands. Um, at that event uh, Monday where I, I saw you speak, uh, you said it, it angered you to discover that some of the products coming out of these plastic factories were going for single-use disposable products. Um, can you talk about that? It seemed like you were drawing yeah. a connection between the growth of the single-use plastics and your community. Well, you know, before working on plastics, I was working on the symptoms, right? The toxics, mm -hmm. the flares, the explosions, uh, trying to get a lot of oversight over um, some of these massive disasters. And I wasn't really focusing on the origin of those disasters, which is plastic production. Because folks in my community and I thought that so many of these chemicals were going into our car in the form of fuels or turning on the lights or the stove. But to know it's for single-use disposable plastics uh, and not something more meaningful is enraging. Yeah, it's our lives and our lives aren't disposable. Okay. Um, well, we're, we're getting close to, to our time here, but there was one other question I just kind of wanted to, sure. to end with. Um, you know, this is your second time at a plastics treaty session. Um, can you give us a little bit of a flavor of what it's like here in terms of what the day-to-day -day is? You're, you're meeting with just how this works. You're meeting with government delegations. You're meeting with similar uh, allied groups. What are, you know, what, what happens day-to-day -day at a plastics treaty negotiating session? You know, the first one was just a couple of days. Now we're here for a week. And when everybody comes in, it, it's a whole process. We have to get accreditation. The accreditation takes months. Uh, we see other delegations from other countries that have visa requirements, unlike in the U.S. We can enter most countries 
And sometimes we've seen delegations completely blocked out of the process because they can't get those uh, permissions to, to come into the host country. It takes so much money and so much effort on behalf of individual organizations. And then the day-to-day -day is meeting with waste pickers uh, and their delegations so that they can share with us what is their reality on the ground, right? And we can share with them, this is what the origin or the production angle looks like. Uh, and then we can talk about what are the solutions look like so that we can come together as one and share that voice here. Uh, but <laughs> I'm really interested also in you know, listening to the comments of other countries. They're shocking. Some of them, it's shocking how uh, much further they are sometimes and what our perspective is, right? Because we have this very Western view, like the West, everything. Mm -hmm. And then you hear uh, different delegations start coming in. And, you know, Mexico, super surprising this year, extremely. Uh, the, the amount of content, the amount of substance and material in their comments was great. The Cook Islands, you know, it's, they're, they're countries that I didn't even necessarily, I'm not geographically well you know, uh, I don't know my map fully, but... I, I wasn't sure where the Cook <laughs> Islands are either, yeah. and I've seen one of their delegates speak here, yeah. Yeah, but so powerful, and it definitely gave me more of an interest into what are countries saying? Uh, what are other countries doing, and how far are we behind, and how far are we ahead, and where can we push to make that change? Okay, well, Yvette, on that note, um, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thank you. This has been a Plastics News production. For more on the Global Plastics Treaty and other stories on plastics public policy matters, visit us at plasticsnews.com. And thanks for listening.